if you go if you go back in time, I built a technology called LVM, which is this fairly obscure compiler technology that then is probably on your phone today and on many of your laptops and in your consoles and things like this. That technology helped unify a generation of compute around CPUs in particular. And so the LLVM was great for hardware people because they could integrate with LLVM and then they got all the C++ and all the Swift and all the other languages and Rust and Julia and things like this for free. But machine learning doesn't have that. And so what modular is building is it's building that thing that once you plug into it, you have a full AI stack. Mm. For, a hard, for a hardware maker, that's a very powerful thing. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Roots. Invest in the only real estate investment trust that creates wealth for you and its residents at investwithroots.com slash twist. Supergut is the only nutrition brand clinically proven to improve digestion, balance blood sugar, sustain energy, and manage weight. Save 25% on the delicious shakes, bars, and prebiotic mix at supergut.com with code twist and LinkedIn marketing to redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash this week in startups. All right, everybody. Welcome back to this week in startups. Really excited for today's guest because he's worked at some of the biggest technology companies in the world and working on AI. His name is Chris Latner. His company is modular. He's worked at Apple. He's worked at Tesla. He's worked at Google, and now he's got his own startup, as I just said, Modular. So as we all know, NVIDIA is dominant right now in the AI space, $16 billion in revenue in Q3. That's 2x year over year. They're wildly profitable. Stocks doubled since 2023. Uh, but as we've said on this pod and all in, and there's going to be competitors coming, right? Of course. And uh, some startups are going at NVIDIA on the hardware front. We had Light Matter on recently, uh, episode 1787. And uh, they're trying to use uh, optics, photonics-based chips, basically, uh, to move data around. It's going to make things cooler in um, data centers and, and help with these large AI jobs. Well, Chris is taking a different approach at Modular. Uh, they're going to make it easier for developers to run AI modules on non-NVIDIA hardware. And uh, they just raised a hundred million, as AI companies are apt to do in twenty twenty three. Chris, welcome to the show. Well, quite the introduction, Jason. Thank you for having me. It's it's great to be here. Yeah, uh, great to have you. And um, you are in the thick of it. One of the things I hear over and over again uh, from people deep in the AI space. I had a conversation with Elon about this not recently, um, and we see it at OpenAI and other places. Is only a small amount of the hardware that's being purchased is being used at any given point in time when AI yeah. jobs are running. So for people who are technical, but maybe not working in the specific field, why is it that when we push a job, you know, we're doing chat GPT five or Claude 7.0, whatever people yeah. are doing, they're doing a, a Lambda or a Llama. I mean, there's yeah. just so many different things on hugging face right now. Why is it that so the the hardware is not optimized? To these jobs why, why are we find ourselves in this and, and then what is the actual percentage of the hardware being used whether it's an h100 a100 or my m2 yeah. on my macbook pro yeah so it's super interesting if you zoom into what is ai these days right so many people focus on training mm -hmm. you have to start with the research you have to start with the models models are changing all the time i mean just follow what's happening it's it's hard to keep up with the pace of innovation in the model architectures 
But then there's also the inference side of things and the deployment side of things. And so these two markets, these two problems are actually completely different. So what you're talking about is you're actually referring to the training side of this. Yeah. And modern training jobs, as many people know, have gotten huge, right? You get tens of thousands of nodes, thousands of GPUs. These are monstrous jobs. And so because of that, what you get is these time-sharing systems. And so it's super funny. Like we went from uh, personalized computers all the way back to the mainframe or the job sharing, like I'm going to literally put in my punch systems, cards. Right? That <laughs> right? was Perot systems. Yeah. 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 And you so we're back time on somebody's mainframe. Well, yeah. So we're back in those days. And so the, the actually better analogy, if I'm not joking about it, is HPC systems. And mm -hmm. so if you, if you go back 10 years ago or something, you'd get one of these massive supercomputer systems that a national lab would install. And then researchers would have to like walk up and allocate time against it. Right. And so. The big question then is how do you amortize the spend for the hardware across a lot of work that happens on any one of these massive supercomputers and training systems today, they're massive supercomputers in every way, shape and form. The programming models are very different. The workloads end up being a bit different. And so there's some differences, of course, but the way they get managed is very similar. Mm -hmm. Now, what I've seen is different groups that own these things manage them sometimes better, sometimes worse, right? And one of the challenges you'll see is that um, for example, the big research teams may uh, allocate, you know, 20,000 GPUs or something. But then the question is, how do you fully utilize it? Mm. This is this is one of the cases where time sharing, like clouds, are actually mm. really great because often you're not training models all the time, right? Your model training is actually proportional to the research cycle that you've got going on. And so if you're, uh, you know, one of the, the massive companies like Google, where you have thousands and thousands of researchers, what you'll do is you'll have this big hardware pool. And then you'll have the researchers that are all like effectively putting in their slot so they can use the machines when they come up and then they run their batch job for perhaps hours, perhaps days, perhaps months, mm -hmm. right? And they get allocation for it. Um, but if you get these smaller groups where sometimes they're on cloud and so they're just renting by the hour, sometimes they build their own data centers. And then well, what they, the problem they have is, okay, cool, you have all this hardware. How are you utilizing it? Is it mm -hmm. being productively used? And so these are major questions that I think that the entire industry is struggling with. But if you go just adjacent to that, that's training. That's where, where the models come from. If you go to production, mm. the character is completely different. And so here, you're not talking about supercomputers. Here, you're talking about the fact that, you know, you may have tens of researchers that train a model and they use a massive amount of hardware to do so. But then you need to deploy that model. Mm. When you deploy the model, the problems are completely different, right? Here, the problem is you have a billion users. And a right. lot of queries and then a lot a of follow-up queries. queries and people yeah. want to, I guess, I'm not sure what it's called when you, well, there's prompt engineering and the prompts are getting more sophisticated. Yep. So all that creates load on the system. Yep. And the load on that system is really different. Instead of it being one massive computer that is then batch scheduled, what you need is you need scale out. Mm. And so any one of those systems is actually a single node often, but now you need thousands and thousands and thousands of these nodes and those are fully utilized. Right, because you got users in 24 time in all the time zones, right? And so that's actually a very different problem and it's super interesting. And so if you look at AI today, it's super fascinating to me how much energy has been put into the training side. Everybody's always talking about the research and the models and the training and the training and the training. Few people talk about what it takes to get that thing into production. Yeah. And one of the big challenges that we as an industry are facing today is that you know, the, these systems that people build with like TensorFlow and PyTorch and these, these kinds of things were always built by the research team for training. Mm. And so getting that model in production is super difficult. And this 
is almost an unsolved problem these days. And one of the challenges there in particular is it's not just about cloud, right? Often you want to train a model and then put it on a phone, mm. right? And so that's a very different problem space and it's much harder than um, some, I mean, it's very, both of these problems are really cool, but it's, Explain it's to super folks hard. Who, after all the training has been done and then you have this language model um, and uh, you, you then want to load it onto a phone, how does that all work? What is the output and, and how would you explain it to, you know, a lay person of, hey, we built the model, but now we want to distribute the model to a bunch of different yeah. places and then let you play with it. But what is required there? So um, I don't think that it would be in good taste to talk about how we do this because it is so complicated and nasty and un and horrible that uh, we cannot go into all the details. But I'll give you a sense. Yeah. Because that, that, that's, that's how I am. Right. So. So if you take a traditional enterprise that's building ML into their products, right? Often they're not building one model into one product, mm. right? So they have some, they have many different kinds of models, some recommender models for like, Hey, maybe you should look at this in your shopping cart next. You have mm. classification models. So you're looking at, okay, well, you, you like that shirt? Like maybe you should pick this shirt. Something, mm. you know, and the, there's many different kinds of products. They then get matrixed into many different kinds of things that they're deploying into. So often cloud is a big deal, but then you have mobile apps and a lot of other things. And so what has ended up happening is that deploying ML today involves building this entire matrix of all these point solutions, because there's no one thing that allows you to span across all of these things. Mm. And so what you end up using is like this catastrophic array of like 15 different tools. Mm. And all these tools have different problems. Like, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Apple sort of. An, an Apple alumni. Yeah. I uh, have you a ton of friends Swift, there. Yeah, the uh, um, easy Swift. to use programming language yeah. for building apps. And so, so I love Apple and I love the Apple folks. But uh, to deploy ML onto an Apple platform, you have to use their point solution called Core ML. Hmm. And Core ML is not compatible with all the models, and so there's all this friction just to get onto an Apple device, right? And so, Apple devices are pretty common out there. And if, if that's hard, you just think about what it means for this wide spectrum of different things. And mm. one of the challenges here, the, the fundamental, the incentive structure problem is that hardware makers like Apple, like, like many other hardware makers, always want to build a solution for their hardware. And mm. nobody's trying to build something that scales across everything. Mm. And so this is what we're focused on. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm joined by Root CEO, Dan Dorfman. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. Tell everybody here in the audience, what is Roots and what makes it different than the other real estate investing platforms? I'm a complete neophyte. Roots is a REIT with a little twist. Sorry, I had to do it. We are the first real estate portfolio that we know of that builds wealth for both our investors and our residents. And we've created a unique win-win model that creates partners and not tenants. Am I, as an investor, if I wanted to put money into this, getting dividends or am I just getting the growth of it? How does all that work? When you invest with us, you get to participate in two ways. One is through the distributions of profits generated at the company. And we pay those out quarterly. Over the last 12 months, that's equated to about a 6% cash on cash return to our investors just in distributions. And then the other way everybody participates is each quarter, we reevaluate what's called our net asset value. And as that ticks up, our unit price or our, our share price of our portfolio goes up as well. And that's how you would basically be able to sell your share at any point and liquidate your investment and move on to your next piece or leave it in and keep growing with us. Head to investwithroots.com slash twist to sign up and start investing today. 
That's invest with roots, no spaces, no dashes, dot com slash twist to sign up today. Because NVIDIA has CUDA, right? That's their yep. software for writing their machine learning apps. Apple has theirs. And, yep. and these two things are G just Google has theirs. Uh, Tesla has theirs, like everybody builds their own thing. So um, if you go back in time, um, they built why does everybody build their own things? Is it just because it didn't exist before or because it's customization is necessary to get the, you know, end result they want? Well, because they don't have a choice. Hmm. Functionally, right? And so it's super interesting. I mean, AI is so important to what we do, right? Nobody takes a step back and says, if AI is so important for the industry, why is all the AI software so bad? Hmm. Right. And so you it's look a, at is that. Is it a function of time? We well, just were so young in the game. Yeah, that, that's that's a big aspect of it. So I, the, the analogy I give to people is that AI is like an adolescent, like it's like a teenager, mm. right? It's, it's, uh, it has some, it's very exciting. It's overconfident. It's got some wins under its belt. It sometimes rolls over its parents car and causes a mess, right? But what's happening right now is everybody just wants AI to grow up. Like people want to mm. build AI into their products. They want to not mess with the AI infrastructure. They want to actually be able to deploy things and build AI-enabled products, right? And right mm -hmm. now, if, you, if you're one of the FANG companies, for example, you can take a team of 50 people and brute force it. But if you're many other people that should be using AI in their applications, it's so much more difficult. And to your question, like, why is everybody build their stack? They don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Like, all of the technologies that exist today are built for a particular piece of hardware or they're built by a research team. The stuff is not production quality. And... If you go if you go back in time, I built a technology called LVM, which is this fairly obscure compiler technology that then is probably on your phone today and on many of your laptops and in your consoles and things like this. That technology helped unify a generation of compute around CPUs mm. in particular. And so the LVM was great for hardware people because they could integrate with LLVM and then they got all the C and all the Swift and all the other languages and Rust and Julia and things like this for free. But machine learning doesn't have that. And so what modular is building is it's building that thing that once you plug into it, you have a full AI stack mm. for hard, for hardware maker. That's a very powerful thing. And what, what is what's NVIDIA's take on what you're doing? Um, are they supportive of what you're doing or do they feel like what you're doing? They're not supportive of because it's going to help, you know, uh, people maybe port to other hardware platforms and maybe take away their dominance or do you get the sense that they care about their dominance at this point? I mean, they seem to have run yeah. away with it right now. Yeah, well, great question. So, I mean, there's this narrative in the industry that, that we're here to hurt NVIDIA or something. NVIDIA is yeah. one of our most important partners, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and, and one of the things that I think people forget about is NVIDIA is really invested in building some really crazy exotic next generation products. Yeah. Right. And so what we're interested in doing is we're interested in expanding the developer ecosystem that can use those products. Mm. So we're on a very complementary set of missions here, right? And so... What we're doing is we're looking at saying, okay, well, this whole AI thing, it evolved rapidly. Again, it, it's very high potential, but it's all a mess. Like the people who do it, as you know, are wicked smart. Yeah. They're some of the most brilliant people in the industry. But there's other good people, too, that have good ideas. Mm -hmm. right? And so if we expand out the developer community, if we 10x the number of people that can participate, think about the amount of innovation that can happen there. Think about the new use cases and applications. Yeah, right now, people don't actually know this but a lot of what's happening in ai is limited to people who can code in um cuda kudo what is yep. it uh yeah, CUDA. yep CUDA. CUDA. and then i guess some people write in 
C sharp or C plus plus? What 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 are the other yeah, ways so people generally get AI code, you know, down the hardware stack? Because you're you're building Mojo, I know, which is yeah, yeah, you know, more Python like, well, I think. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that. Um, so it really it really varies, and again, AI is not one thing. This is yeah. another thing that I think people get sometimes distracted by. But it's not like transformers are one thing, for example. Yeah. And so if you look at a llama model or uh, uh, like stable diffusion, which is a unit model, which is a very different architecture, what you get is a lot of Python on the outside. Mm. And the Python ha- handles what's called tokenization of converting input text into something the model can understand. You then get something like PyTorch or TensorFlow involved, which is itself a gigantic, complicated thing that is awesome in some ways, but also challenging in other ways. You get custom CUDA kernels, as you're saying. So you want to get high performance out of one accelerator. And so what ends, and you get C++ because sometimes Python is really slow. And so what ends up happening is as a developer building one of these next generation models, you have to know all of these different things. And mm-hmm. so practically speaking, no, no, no sane humans actually can do that. Mm-hmm. And so this is why you need teams of experts. Mm-hmm. And these teams are super experts in every single different one of these parts of the problem where somebody knows model architecture and differential equations, somebody knows CUDA, somebody knows C++, somebody knows all these things. And so only that is what's able to bring these things together. Which we've seen this movie before in the early days of the web, setting up a web server <laughs> itself, getting a Sun Microsystems, you know, server, yeah. uh, you know, it, it wasn't like today, uh, obviously. Uh, yeah. And uh, remember when we had apps come out, even pre-iPhone, if you were trying to build something for Nokia or Docomo Do- or any of these other platforms around the world, it was really hard. And there was a yeah. limited number of people who could do it, which meant, you just didn't see a lot of apps. They would come yep. very slowly, a couple of apps a year. They were super interesting. Uh, but and, then and, once they were, and they're expensive too, right? Because the development costs expensive. were so high. Yeah, which means something that's fun or interesting. Like the idea that there would be an app for skiers. Like I have an app yeah. on my phone for skiers called Slopes. There's like probably yeah. a half dozen of them. The fact that there was a solo developer or two-person development team on their weekend hustle building an app. It's just a crazy thought. I mean, you were at Apple yeah. when this happened. The concept that an app could be made by one person yep. in their spare time and get to a million dollars in revenue or even a hundred thousand yep. in revenue, ten thousand revenue was just there were so many hurdles to that. You had to actually do deals yep. with the carriers. You had to put up servers yourself. You had to figure out how to get distribution. That app on, yeah, getting the app the distribution onto people's phone was a roadblock. You just think about the genius of Steve Jobs. The app store for distribution, the the payment rails uh, for people buying yep. it, and then the, you know this, this really lightweight, easy uh, app discovery, and and the ability to write them. So, you're working on yep. Mojo. This is a programming language. Well, just just before we move on from yeah. Apple, right? So yeah. my, my my job at Apple was to lead the developer tools team, right? I mean, I, I had many hats, but by by the time I left, I was running the developer tools team with Xcode, the whole iOS app development ecosystem, built the Swift programming language. Also supported all of the internal hardware, which Apple has very fancy, very exotic and next gen hardware that they're building. And a major part of the job is to make people more productive, mm-hmm. make it so more people can participate exactly as you're saying, because so many people have good ideas for apps, right? And yeah. so if you get more people involved, like the, the move from Objective-C to Swift, massively simplified things, made it much easier to learn. That was a huge movement that then enabled entirely new categories. And so many people today tell me, you know, I I was able to become a programmer because of Swift, right? Mm. And so ML, I believe, is got exactly the same thing going on, right? Where it's absolutely possible for the most advanced teams to achieve things, right? But first of all, like complexity, which is really our enemy here, complexity, like if you fill your head with accidental complexity, you don't have space for other stuff, 
Yeah. And so by relieving the accidental complexity, you make the teams of experts even more productive. But then you're also more inclusive to other people who have good ideas, but <laughs> either are, you know, repelled you, by the complexity you, or not. What are the strategies for getting rid of complexity? I mean, I'm just thinking about playing chess. Yeah. You kind of learn some heuristics, yep. you know, some basic sets of moves, chunks of moves yep. that yep. you can apply in different places. Uh, or, um, you know, we have co-pilots, which, you yep. know, and we have open source. We, yep. we have a lot of different ways to help people with complexity. But when you look at complexity in the world... What do you think of? Do you have a playbook for reducing yeah. complexity? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, and this is one way that modular is very different than pretty much everybody else in space. But um, complexity comes through abstraction, or re reduction of complexity comes through abstraction, and through getting people to be able to work together. Hmm. Okay, and so the 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 idea here is that you look at all of the domains of people that are involved, including all the people putting together the transistors on the chip. Right? Hmm. There's so many different specialities. The, the details can't fit in any one head. So success comes from teams of people, right? Mm -hmm. And then composing on other people's work. Right? And so a lot of what I think software has been successful, I mean, you've built some pretty epic systems, right? Yep. It comes from being able to take things that other people built that you don't have to understand and then build new things on top of it, right? And so what a lot of folks are doing today in ML systems and ML ops and a lot of these things is they say, okay, well, there's so much complexity out here. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to throw a layer of Python on top of the stack, and then you'll deal with our layer. And look, look how simple it is. Therefore, you don't need to know about any of this complexity. Now, there have been dozens or hundreds of attempts at this. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. Some of it's really good. But, but the, the challenge with that is if, if you're building on top of something like TensorFlow or PyTorch or you know, you're trying to get onto novel kinds of hardware and like a TPU or something like that. Well, you actually get exposed to all this accidental complexity because it all leaks. Mm. And so, yeah, you get this cool demo, but you can't fix performance or scalability or programmability or security or like the, these core problems that people struggle with by adding a layer of Python on top of systems that are fundamentally broken. Yeah, the fa so facade doesn't work. And in a way, what we've seen happen in the modern web uh, over time, you, you, know, you have cloud computing, abstracting yep. away, putting up servers, uh, and, that, yep. uh, and then storage got abstracted. I mean, GPS got abstracted away. There's yep. an, a software development kit, an SDK for anything. There's an API for anything. And then even building glue between systems um, has gotten easier. You used to call it middleware, I guess, back in the day. Yeah. I don't know if there's still a term for that, but enterprise Java beans. <laughs> yeah, be I mean, it's all this like weird stuff to try to get you to move data from one system to the other. It like, seems like comical now. Maybe you just talk about the complexity in the world writ large yeah. and in the technology stack because yeah. you've been at this for a couple of decades. Yeah, it, yeah. it is pretty amazing when somebody's coming in now, a, a 20 year old developer in school who is like building stuff. How much do they know about what's actually going on beneath, you know, you know, you see the yeah. little tip of the iceberg, but did they, are they even aware of like the complexity underneath? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, again, it's hard to make generalizations about all 20 year olds yeah. um, because it, there, there's some variants there, but on the average 20 year old, on the average so, 20 year old, yeah. they know Python. Yep. They know, um, if you go into computer science, you know how to train a neural network, for example, but you don't know how to mm -hmm. deploy it. Right. You get exposed to some other programming. Maybe you'll get a little bit of C or something like that. But most of most people coming out of a computer science degree know Python. And pretty much everybody that is not designed to be a computer scientist. So there's a lot of other fields out there. Uh, no Python. Mm. 
right? And so Python is great because it's super high abstraction. It's like the ultimate duct tape language where you can bolt together these very powerful libraries. But Python also has certain challenges when it comes to performance or dealing with hardware or a lot of the things that inhabit the AI space. And so running Python on a service with a billion users is not always great, right? And so there are challenges there. And so, I mean, if you come back to what, what is modular doing about this, what we're tackling, instead of adding layers of layers of Python on top of existing systems, we're saying, let's go explode those systems. Let's do the hard thing. Let's go build the system from the bottom up. And this starts at the hardware, right? The hardware, there's a lot of really good hardware out there. To your point, nobody yeah. knows how it works. I mean, the people that built it do, but, but most application developers don't know how it works. And what has happened is that right on top of the hardware, there's all these different layers of effectively middleware, just like you say, mm. right? But each piece of hardware has a different layer of middleware. And so that means that when you get to the top layer, the part that anybody actually wants to work on is super fragmented. And it makes sense. It's the incentive yeah. structure of the people building the hardware. They want to build a thing for themselves. But the, the, the losers are all of us trying to get our jobs done. Right? Right. And many people in ML don't want to care about the hardware. They're made to care about it. You've heard me talk about Supercut a bunch. This has been a key part of my health journey. It's an awesome nutrition company that my bestie, David Friedberg from the All In Podcast started. I love their bars. I love their shakes, especially the gut balancing chocolate brownie bar. It is delicious. They also have an unflavored prebiotic mix you can add to anything. I like to put it in my coffee. You can put it in your oatmeal. Their products are super helpful for weight loss. Why? Well, Super Guts products mimic the effects of Ozempic by boosting your GLP-1 hormone. This helps quell hunger and boost your metabolism, which is a great great combination obviously and super guts prebiotic fiber that actually uh, alleviates digestive issues and obviously the products all taste great the best part the team at super gut actually put the work in and scientifically proved their products work they conducted a placebo controlled clinical trial with stanford last year that's been published in the medical journal diabetes obesity and metabolism the results were amazing the participants in this study they lost weight they lowered their blood sugar they improved their metabolic health and they had improved digestion and so much more. Whether you want to improve your gut health, maybe drop a few pounds like I did, or just feel better throughout the day. And listen, you're busy, you're traveling. I like to bring Supergut with me. Go to supergut.com and use the code TWIST. You get 25% off. Go to supergut.com and use the code TWIST to get 25% off. I've been on this health journey. I've lost 40 pounds. A big part of that, sincerely, was me using Supergut. So go to supergut.com and use the code TWIST for 25% off. What is this hardware going to look like in five or 10 years? Because yeah. we're at this point in time where what OpenAI did with, I think, 3.5 really kind of captured people's imagination yep. and, you know, being able to actually play with it inspired a lot of developers yep. to maybe get in there. Um, and so here we are, everybody buying up sovereign wealth funds, you know, governments, countries, uh, you know, individuals, companies, startups, everybody buying up all this hardware, yep. racking it, data centers. And um, it seems to me, um, having watched this happen with fiber, yep. uh, you know, we overbuilt fiber massively. Yep. And then all the fiber companies, WorldCom, etc. Uh, there were a ton of these uh, went bankrupt, they became worth n literally 98 99% less than they were when they went public. And, and all that yep. wound up getting bought by Google and other people at auctions. Are we at a similar moment right now where we're building up massive capacity? Or do you think there's enough jobs here to mm -hmm. actually use this hardware? And then the second part of the question, so there's something about like this moment in time. 
where does this all wind up? If we're sitting here yeah. five years from today, are we looking and going, hey, wow, there's somebody just leapfrogged NVIDIA or there's three choices. You can go just like you do Android or you can do an yep. iPhone or you can, you know, pick AWS, Azure or Google or Rackspace or yep, yep. You know, right on down the line. Yeah, well, so great question. So they're really two different questions. Two different um, questions. One question there is the today problem, mm -hmm. right? And today problem, everybody's talking about NVIDIA and the stockouts of NVIDIA and wouldn't it be great if there are other options. It's super funny because the majority of spend by many, by many metrics is actually on the inference side, which is still very dominated by CPUs. Yeah. And again, like we, we talk about the, the pain point. Well, the pain point is people are trying to build these massive systems and there are not enough GPUs to go around. But meanwhile, so much AI is in our life. That's mm -hmm. all being served in cloud. A lot of that's have, I mean, some of it's on GPUs and cloud, but a lot of that's on CPUs, mm -hmm. right? And There's it works also, totally fine. And it works you're, totally fine. Yeah. If you're on Amazon and it's showing you some additional products like right. the one you're looking at, in all yep. likelihood, that is a machine learning job that's being done yep. on a CPU that was written five years ago or 10 years or if, ago. Or if you do a Google search query, there's dozens of models all talking and doing yeah. weird things. And, and there's this intricate dance, right? And so, and so it's really interesting if you look at that, like the, your question about, is there going to be an oversupply and overabundance? I, I have no way to know, right? My goal is increase consumption mm. by creating new categories, right? right. And so, and it's, it has nothing to do with H100 or NVIDIA. It's just about... AI and the applications of it are like a good thing. It makes people's worlds better. And so if we can increase the number of cool things and make our lives better, that, that seems good to me. Now, your question about where do we go from here, right? So forget about, forget about cloud for a second. Like, so I, I've been working in the hardware software boundary for, for decades now. And the thing that when I zoom out and I look at, look at this time, it's been super interesting. You know, people talk about Moore's law ended, you know, whatever. And what, what is Moore's law? Well, Different nerds will argue pedantically what that means, but it really means, you know, back in the day, we'd get a new laptop and every year it would be, you know, 80, yeah. 2x 18 faster. months be twice as, yeah. twice as fast. Your twice Pentium fast. chip was twice as fast. Absolutely. On the same code, right? And yeah. so, and so what ended up happening, I don't know, 10 years ago ish, is we had multi core CPUs. Ah, we have more than one of these to deal with. And then mm -hmm. we had GPUs come on the scene. Yep. Right. You, you look to now, we have, Massive GPUs. We have really dedicated uh, AI chips like the Google TPU and Gaudi from Intel and like all these things. There's tons of these things. Um, and we still have CPUs, but these days CPUs have like 100 cores on. Mm. Right. And so to me, again, many people are laser focused on t the today problem. Yeah. But what happens when you look out five years or 10 years? Yeah. Right. And to me, I look at this is driven by physics. This is not a question about software or things like this. Physics is forcing hardware to get weird. And, and more importantly, specialized in the rise of wearables, the rise of personal computing, the rise of all like AR, VR, like all these things are a straight line towards very customized chips. Mm. And so, so that's so very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're going to have all, I mean, we're going to have even more crazy hardware in five years than we do today. And this is where you start to say, like, how can we scale the software? Right. Mm. Nobody's going to be able to rewrite everything for every new generation of hardware. That that doesn't work, and this is this is why we're focused on solving this problem. What do you think of the open source um, Risk Five and, and you know AMD licensing models, and then hardware being built by other folks? Obviously, Nvidia outsources their hardware in terms of how it's being, and they're a designer as well. But it's proprietary and it's closed. Um, so, is what happened with Python and other open source, and you know everything we've seen in the open source community is is that likely to happen with? 
hardware? Um, yeah. Or is that, um, you know, yeah, well, great question. So, so immediately before Modular, I worked at a company called Sci5, and they're the inventors of RISC V. Yep. RISC V is an open source instruction set. And so what RISC V allows you to do is it allows any hardware maker to create a member of the RISC V family. And what that means, most importantly, is you get software. <laughs> and so that is huge. Traditionally, you'd have, for example, ARM owns the ARM instruction set, and only ARM and its licensees can build ARM-compatible chips. Yeah. Or XA6, you can have Intel and AMD, and they're the only ones allowed to build XA6 chips. And so with RISC-V, it allows you to go build. Arbit arbitrary people can invent new things and play there. And I think that this, this is causing an explosion of innovation. And again, the challenge with that, <laughs> the good thing about that is you get explosion of innovation. The challenge with that is you get all this crazy hardware, right? And right. so there's no software. And so you need software that can scale on to all this innovation. And so right. that's really where kind of the, the industry is at loggerheads. In, uh, yeah. And so AMD and these folks, they, they have blueprints, but they own those blueprints. They're, they're, they're patents. You can't just take them and build a house with them if we're just using an analogy right. here. But if you take the risk, uh, five, uh, do they call it risk five or risk V? It's risk five. Uh, risk five the, yeah. the nerdery on that is that there's four things before it. So yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I kind of got that. I, I've heard yeah. somebody say risk V, and I'm like, are, are you sure it's risk V or is it risk, sounds like risk five? I, um, it's definitely five. It's it's basically caught up to ARM, I think, in terms of throughput, or it's close enough. Um, well, well so, so so with any of these things, it completely depends on what you measure. Right? There's advantages to ARM. There's advantages to risk five. It's all super nuanced, and a lot of people want to make overly simplified. Does this is this thing better than this thing? And in right. tech, it's never really that simple. And so yeah. ARM has got a very strong position. They they certainly have some challenges. Um, they they they've got to stay on their toes. Um, but uh, but really, the innovation is the piece that I care about, right? And mm. and I want to make it so that once these people invent really cool risk five based silicon or ARM-based silicon, or whatever, right, that they can actually do something about that, right? Because having cool hardware that nobody uses is really kind of a problem right now. All right, listen, when you're selling to business-to-business -to -business buyers, you really want to get your pitch in front of decision makers. Why? Because upper-level execs are usually the ones making purchasing decisions. Duh. The problem is, high-level folks can be really hard to find and target on most social media platforms. But on LinkedIn, oh my God, they know all of the CTOs, all of the CFOs, all of the VPs of finance, engineering, HR, recruiting, all those titles are sitting there waiting for you. And now let's just talk about the funnel. LinkedIn's about to hit a billion members. Did you know that? 950 million members at this point in time. There are 180 million of those 950 who are senior level execs. There are 10 million C-level executives in that 180 million senior level execs which are part of the 950 million members. I am a C-level executive. I am on LinkedIn all day long because LinkedIn equals business, business equals LinkedIn, and LinkedIn ads are built specifically for B2B marketers. LinkedIn generates two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. LinkedIn equals business, business equals LinkedIn. When people are on LinkedIn, they're ready to do business. It's that simple. So make business to business marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign from me, your boy, J-Cow. I'm sending you the hundy, linkedin.com slash This Week in Startups to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash This Week in Startups. Terms and conditions apply because they're giving you the hundy. Tell me how NVIDIA got here to a certain extent 
Yeah. Uh, because I think we watched this happen where nerds were playing Call of Duty and they wanted their frame rates to, you know, it doesn't even matter. It's, it's beyond the just noticeable perception in biology. You, you can't even tell the difference between 120 yeah. frames or 100, 240. It doesn't even matter. But these lunatics wanted the best. And, and I guess NVIDIA just kept giving them better and better hardware. And then you had this crazy crypto moment where everybody started buying all this hardware from NVIDIA to, to run jobs. And now AI is yeah. a kind of circuitous route, I think. Um, maybe you could explain wh why that's brilliant and then what the limitations of it yeah. are. Because again, it's not always one thing, but it, I think the history of how they got here is kind of important or is it not? It's totally important. Um, and I mean, to your audience of people who care about startups, it's super illustrative, right? Because NVIDIA didn't magically step onto success. It was earned, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't It wasn't an accident. And so if you go back, I'm not a super expert in NVIDIA history, but my understanding yeah. is it's a combination of two really important things. So NVIDIA, like some of the other companies you're a fan of, uh, goes, went through several phases where they made bet the farm bets, mm -hmm. had near-death experiences, and then were right. <laughs> and so one of those bets was on programmability. And so a lot of people were building the Call of Duty Accelerator, and there's a bunch of competition on just make games go faster, just make games go faster, just make games go faster. And Jensen and team bet, I think it was the GeForce 3, on saying, okay, well, hard coding for graphics is not enough. Let's make it so you can do more general compute mm -hmm. on this hardware. And so it's not going to be like a CPU. It's a different thing. It's a different category they created. But... Let's do this. And that was a huge bet and a non-obvious bet. Nobody else made that bet back then. Um, almost drove them out of business <laughs> through the complexity of executing on that. Um, but what it meant is that new kinds of things could run on the graphics card. And that created new markets. And so one of the things you're pointing out is crypto, right? Well, they yeah. didn't design a crypto accelerator. Crypto wandered up and said, I need tremendous amounts of compute. And they were there and ready to serve it. And because they had programmability, they're able to scale into mm. the opportunity. You know, they talk about luck, right? Well, how do, how do you get lucky? Well, part of it is being ready to take advantage of the luck that presents itself. And I think yes. that, that is really what, what happened to them. Um, if, you, if you look at um, machine learning, right? A lot of people go back to the seminal moment in machine learning called the AlexNet moment. Mm. And, Explain. And AlexNet yeah, was when uh, Fei-Fei Li's team at Stanford created this big data set called ImageNet. And they created a competition around it. And that competition was to go find the most accurate predictor and identifier for what was in an image. And so for, for a few years, people were working on this using traditional machine learning techniques. And then these folks invented this deep neural network called AlexNet that then solved ImageNet. I mean, not solved it, but ma made a massive leap forward in terms of prediction. Now, um, the way that story is usually told is that it's a combination of two different things. It's a combination of having a huge amount of data but then also having GPU compute. Mm. And so we need both data and compute to be able to solve that problem and make that massively forward, which then catalyzed so much of deep learning today. But the thing they forget is that nobody had the convolution kernels, the algorithms to implement Resonant. That didn't exist on a GPU back then. Mm -hmm. So the reason AlexNet happened is a combination of three things, actually. It's a combination of data, the amount of compute that was available, and then the bet that Jensen and his team made on programmability to allow some researchers to go invent some new algorithms and then do it on their platform. And then fast forward a few years, it turns out, yeah, they were lucky that deep learning caught on and turned out to be pretty economically important. 
But that's what put them in the position that caused all these things like TensorFlow and PyTorch and things like that to get built on their platform. And that's how CUDA got entrenched into so much of machine learning today. Yeah. And so the, the, the journey of NVIDIA, I mean, you can, you can like play this back across so many startups, right? Are you creating a new category? Are you, are you leaning into the obvious thing everybody's talking about today? Are you seeing around the corner and betting on where technology is going, right? There's so many of these questions that I think that, you know, there's no one right answer, but it really plays into a lot of the journey. Well, and, and to your point about what you're doing, Mojo, if you enable more people, the street finds its own yep. use for technology. Exactly. William Gibson quote, like, you say, hey, listen, you want to do some of the, you want to try to identify an image and figure out if it's a hot dog or not? Sure. Use yep. our GPUs. You don't need our permission because it's permissionless. I mean, not yep. crypto permissionless, but you, yep. it's your hardware. You own it. Do what you want with it. And it's yep. is one of the great, great things about whether it's open source or just open platforms in general, people building platforms. Yep. Um, and so when you look at this uh, from a playing field, having been an Apple uh, and watched what happened with open platforms and apps, yep. where do you fall on the call it the AI wrapper debate of 2023? Oh, this company, we have a great company roam around. They let you type they're, they're building a vertical itinerary travel itinerary piece of software. And say, Oh, you can go to chat GPT and say, Hey, where should I go in San Diego with my kids? Or, you know, roam around building it, and they've got a very narrow data set, and they're, they're really tweaking it around travel. So you, you have all these verticalized ones. I have a yep. we invested in a verticalized screenplay writing software. Yep. So yep. we're writer. It, it's it's kind of like Final Draft just for that. Yep. And my belief is like, yeah, there'll be a lot of these vertical things because you have yep. the interface and you have all the kind of features that will go around it. And sure, ChatGPT could do a version of it, but it's not going to do like a, a polished version of it. So the AI wrapper derogatory statement towards startups building verticalized AI apps versus one giant language model Claude or magically solves all the problems magically solves every problem on the planet is that even possible or where where do you think this all winds up well so i mean i think that there's many different angles in in terms of what is the better product Mm. what captures the most value in terms of investment hypothesis like what is the roi on these things right so Mm -hmm. when i look at this as saying um i'm not a believer in a one-size-fits-all solution I mean, maybe theoretically AGI someday will come. And until then, I will hold hold on to that thought. But um, in the absence of AGI, which magically solves all problems, I look at AI as being a solution to certain kinds of problems. Mm. Right. And some people, some of my friends even, uh, want to say that AI is better than software. <laughs> you know, and it's just like a straight replacement. But that's, a, in my opinion, objectively false. What you what can look at. What they mean by that is, just having a chat interface with an AI agent and talking to them, you'll solve more problems than having to write software. It'll just do whatever the task is. Or you're well, saying in terms of writing software. Well, I mean, you, you know this, Jason. Like, you know that building a product is way more than like having a, an algorithm, right? It's right, about yeah. building a relationship with the customer. It's about having user interface. It's about having a, a revenue model. It's about having brand. A, a, a brand. It's having like, all of these things, right? And so yeah. when I look at that, when I look at one of these verticals, so you talk about the copywriting thing or, or, or these things, these are clearly valuable products. Yeah. AI is clearly a valuable way to implement these products, and it can be differentiation within that category. I don't think that makes that product magical. I think mm-hmm. that that makes it comparable to other things in that vertical. 
And so AI is a much more efficient and smart and uh, product-focused way of building out that technology. But I would look at that as saying AI is an implementation detail of building into that vertical. And I think that has a huge amount of value. And so like, yeah. if you're looking at it as an investment hypothesis, I would not value that as an AI company per se. I would value it as a vertical consumer vertical, whatever it is, company. Yeah. And and now they're doing it in a smart way using the best tech they have available. Yeah, just like there's going to be some, you know, the the Yelp app, the, the Yelp app yeah. is so much yeah. better than using the website, right? And they, they yeah. just use that new uh, technology to, to make it uh, a better experience. Ha, ha, you yeah, I mean, every, every, yeah. Everybody's also looking at the David versus Goliath thing, right? And so everybody wants the yeah. little guys to take down the big guys. But the big guys have all these other things going for them, including distribution and many of these other things. So, Well, listen, you're on the inside of all this. I, I got to ask you, what is the inside track amongst people of your peers who are deep in the AI game and have been in it for a long time? What's their take on what's what OpenAI did? This open source, you know, or, you know, open, it's in the name, uh, and that, hey, we're going to, we're going to, this is too important. This technology is way too important for any major company to have a wrap on it. It, it really the world needs us to go out there and really make sure that it's not just deep mind inside of buried in some Google, you know, uh, corridor and some building on a campus. Sure, we're going to build this and then they got to 3.5. And they're like, or whatever, three. And they're mm -hmm. like, you know what, we were wrong. Uh, I don't know if they ever said that. But this is way too powerful. <laughs> we're going to be closed AI. Well, do people look at that as just a money grab, as cynicism, or as sincere? Well, how does the industry, and I'm not saying this for you, but do people look at that and go, it's a money grab. They went from a nonprofit to a for-profit. That's all it is. You know, the, the people there want to make money, which is fine. We all do. You're raising venture capital. It's, it doesn't come without expectations. So what, what's, the, what's the take on that crazy move yeah. to go from a nonprofit to a for-profit, from an open system to a closed system? Honestly, this isn't my area of specialization. I mean, I'd much rather. Well, I'm just curious. Talk about what do you think about um, this weirdness? My, my opinion is what do you expect? They took VC money to get return. Yeah. The end. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, and, and so, I mean, I think that things that appear too good to be true sometimes are, right? And so if yeah. you're expecting, if you're expecting somebody out of the goodness of their heart to dump billions of dollars of compute into building a free product, then. Well, you're paying for it somehow. Maybe it's with your data. Maybe it's some other way. I mean, I think this is generally true in the world. And yeah. I think people are getting smarter about that. And so, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the surprise is surprising, but um, yeah. I don't I don't know too much about the details on how they decided to do that or what it means. Yeah, there's trade-offs everywhere. Uh, when yeah. you look at the impact on society, I am, you know, I'm an investor in a lot of companies. And what I'm seeing on the front line of startups and inside really nimble organizations that are the tip of the spear in terms of using technology, not just to build their product, but to build their businesses. They're building 12 person businesses with four people. Yep. They are getting a lot done with less. And yep. it happened, boom, in one year. This is year one. I mean, I, people still forget that it was last fall that 3.5 came out and kind of blew people's minds, let alone 4.0 and whatever else is coming next. So when you look at the impact on the world, knowing mm -hmm. what you know from the seat you're in, um, is what we saw this year, which is to say, I think people got 30 or 40% more efficient at their jobs if they know how to use this technology easily. Is that going to compound or is it going to be the same? And then impact uh, on society? Yeah, well, so I don't know. I don't know the math on that. But um, the, the impact is going to be huge. Right. But the huge impact is also going to be um, spread out over time. Right. The impact, as you say, 
you have seen it, but mm-hmm. you're zeroed into a very specific part of the problem. We still can't hire programmers. <laughs> like, yeah. There's not enough programmers out there to implement all the stuff that needs to be implemented. And so while it is true, it's impacting part of the ecosystem. It turns out that um, there's a big part that it isn't. One of my questions is that when you have disruptive technology, how do you think about technology diffusion? How long does it take something that should be disruptive? And everybody knows it's a 10x improvement or whatever. How, how long does it take to like actually get out into the ecosystem? Because mm-hmm. sure, the neural network algorithms change every week, but we humans don't. <laughs> like we, yeah. It takes a long time for us to learn new habits. And it takes time for all the planning cycle and things like this to change. Um, one of the things I think people forget is that as a coder, people focus on, okay, I'm going to study up. I'm going to put the semicolons in the right place. And you know, I've worked on programming languages forever. Um, but so much of coding is working as part of a team. Mm. Right. And so the way I look at this is I look at it as saying, okay, imagine you had the amazingly awesome coder robot. Right. And we're not amazingly awesome yet. We're promising, but we're not amazingly awesome yet. You still, that's like adding a member to your team. Right. Mm. And so adding one member to a four person team is huge. Huge right? Partic- Particularly if they're really good. But you still need to review the code. You still need to integrate in the product. You still need to decide your product strategy. You have to understand the relationship with the customer. You have to, so you're, you're, you're improving one really important part of the problem. You still have to do all the other work right yeah. now. Now, ChatGPT and things like this can help with some of that. They can help with graphic design and like AI is good, good at many different pieces, right? But I think that it will take time for us all to figure out how best to utilize this. And is it human creative or is it disruptive or how does that work out over time? But how, I mean, how much faster are developers getting in your estimation? Like with these co-pilots and it feels like they're getting 10, 20, 30% faster year over year. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if it's, a, if it's cumulative is the problem, right? So, because what yeah, I've seen is sort of what oh, I was getting at is like, yeah, are we gonna I've, sustain seen this? Of, I've seen a lot of boilerplate get automated. I haven't mm. seen a lot of the actually interesting part of product design get automated. Huh? Fascinating. Yeah. Right. So that's and where so, the human creativity will be. Yep. Yeah. And so this, this is where like, yeah, if you take, I don't go back in the day, XML or something like if you take something yeah. super boilerplate, then AI automation is amazing, right? But there are also other better ways to do that, <laughs> you know? So that's, that's a different well, way to we, look at the question. We also have a little bit of a corollary for this. So, you know, I look back on my career and it's like, it was two decades before everybody got a PC on their desk and in their home. Yeah. It was literally from like 1980 to 2000. By the time yeah. you got to 2000, the idea that somebody didn't have a computer at work was like, really? I mean, you'd yeah. have to look really hard in an organization in 2000 to find somebody with a desk without a desktop yeah. computer on it. Or, or cell phones. Right. I mean, and then you look at cell phones, two decades. Usually disruptive technology. Diffusion takes time right now. Yeah. I, th- I think this may go much faster than hardware transitions did because yeah. the, the inherent time delays and manufacturing yeah. and stuff like that is much lower, but it, it'll be similar. Well, I mean, now we, but I, I think that's, you just nailed the point, which is then you look at something like Google, Uber, or, you know, yeah. some other software-based platforms that aren't, don't require, you know, hardware that are built on top of them. Those things all took 10 years. So. Yeah. Yep. You know, I think maybe this next group is, you know, maybe go yeah. from 20 years to deploy, 10 years to deploy and hit the masses. Yeah. And maybe now it's three, four, five. Well, as you look at startups, right? I mean, I think that I've seen so many of these. I'm sure you've seen probably 100x more, but so many of these folks that are like, look, I built a thing. It's it's a thin layer on top of chat GPT. I hacked it together in a month. I'm going to make mass amounts of money and it's going to be amazing, right? Yeah. In my experience, which is obviously small selection size, but... um if you can build something in a month, so can everybody else. Yeah. There's no <laughs> mode, so, by the way. Exactly. And so and if, if you, it if works, you, then everybody's going to be after you. Right. Yeah. And so 
And so that's one of the challenges. And for me, this is where I, the, the things I work on can take years, right? And so what right. I do is I say, okay, well, this is going to be a 10 or 15 or 20 year journey. How do I break it down into milestones? How do I have mm. usefully viable things that are maybe not the big win? Because yeah. everybody wants to jump to the end, but how do I make sure we're making progress and delivering useful value and, and learning and iterating and cycling, building up to something that's really quite huge. And yeah. to me, that's, that's a lot more. What's your next one? What's the next milestone? What's the waypoint that you're working towards? Yeah, so why don't we go back to modular? Because I don't think yeah, we've we've talked it, much yeah. about products and where we yeah. are. Um, yeah. So, so modular, what we're doing is we're tackling all this complexity, right? This industry is a mess. We have all these people, all these companies, all this stuff happening, and it's you know just keeping track of it is a mess. But also, you have all these infighting groups. Like none of the LLM companies get along. None of the hardware people get along. None of the cloud people get along. Nobody gets along in the space, right? And so, as a consequence of that, all that complexity is being forced on us. And so, modular is. Rebuilding this from the bottom up and providing a unified thing that simplifies this away for people. Mojo, which you brought up, mm. is one of the major pieces of this. What Mojo is, is it's a programming language. Well, who in their right mind invents a new programming language? <laughs> well, I've been there, done that. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've, I've built OpenCL. I've built the, the, one of the most widely used implementations of C++. I built the Swift programming language from scratch, right? And so why do you do that? Well, you do that because you want to build and help and solve a problem that you can't solve any other way. Mm. Like building programming languages should never be in anybody's right mind. The first thing you jump to, but here's the problem we faced, which is that everybody in machine learning uses Python. People generally love it, right? Python is, I mean, my, my kids know ubiquitous. Python, right? Yeah. It's ubiquitous. And, and people don't consider it to be broken, but then you run into AI where now you have high performance GPUs and you have, crazy accelerators and you have all this kind of stuff going on and you have C++ and you realize that Python is really great at composing opaque things that other people made, but it doesn't give you the hackability to actually go customize and change things. Mm. And so what Mojo does is Mojo says, okay, well, let's take this problem and let's do a very hard tech project of building a new programming language, inventing all new compilers and runtimes and very low level system stuff that allows Python to scale. Mm. Let's embrace Python and its entire ecosystem, because what I've learned in my experience with this kind of stuff is that generally humans love to learn things. We all love to grow. We like learning new techniques. We want to put new things in our toolbox. It's all great. But we hate resetting to zero so yeah, that we no. can then learn, right? And so what Mojo allows you to do is if you know Python, you can walk right in. The things you already know continue to work. But now if you want to write some high-performance code, you can do so. And not everything needs to be high performance. You can choose where you care about applying the time, and that allows you to scale. And so a mm -hmm. big part about what Modular does is our number one mandate is meet the consumer where they are, <laughs> right? And guess what? A lot of developers are on Python. We love Python. We want to make it better. We're not trying to go like make a completely different system that has nothing to do with Python and hope it ends up being better. It's a different approach. Mm -hmm. um, AI is what you're talking about. Huge mess. Like all these different mm. fighting systems, there's no thing to plug into, none of the stuff is compatible. So what Modular provides is this thing called the AI Engine. And the AI Engine is a drop-in compatible replacement for TensorFlow and PyTorch. And so if you're using PyTorch, if you're using TensorFlow, you do not have to rewrite your code. Mm. Turns out, who wants to rewrite their code? Nobody, Nobody. stands up, yeah. right? And yeah. so what we can do is we can be a drop-in replacement that then provides a ton of value. And so for a lot of enterprises, it has value in terms of consolidating, eliminating all the point solutions. And so many people have a little bit of TensorFlow, a little bit of PyTorch. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a huge fork. Now they have a little bit of CPU, a little bit of GPU. They have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They have diff- different kinds of models and different kinds of specialized things. And we can consolidate that into one simple thing that turns out is commercially supported. Who wants to run their own mail server these days? Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, do you want to build and run your own cobbled together storage thing? Right. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, again, AI needs to grow up. Um, uh, it's programmable and extensible. Do you want to give up your product strategy to somebody else? Well, no. It turns out that people want to take models and then customize them. Right? You want to make it work right for what you're doing. And so having the ability to hack the system is actually super important. Right? It's extensible via hardware. Right? And all these different pieces, the Mojo and Engine. How hard is it to make it compatible with each different hardware platform? How long does that take? And It's super hard. Right? So, yeah. it, so I mean... I mean, if, if you want me to talk about my, my backstory, like I've been working on these super exotic esoteric compilers and systems and GPUs and accelerators and things for decades. Right. And so a lot of what brought modular to exist is this realization that if we keep building one-off solutions to each of these things, Mm. we as a software industry will never scale. Yeah. And so a lot of the core tech, a lot of the core invention at modular and the reason that what we have is interesting is we enable people to bring up hardware much faster. Mm. And so, for example, um, we have just on CPU front, as an example, lots of people use Intel CPUs. They're really great. They're pervasively available in the cloud. Right. Turns out that PyTorch, for example, super optimized by Intel for Intel CPUs. Right. Also turns out that you can get AMD CPUs in cloud. Mm. Turns out their instance types are usually much cheaper for the same amount of performance horsepower. But guess what? For some reason, it doesn't run super effectively on AMD CPUs. Oh, wow. Go figure. Go figure, right? And, yeah. and so turns out Modular has massive performance uplifts on Intel, even bigger uplifts on AMD. But then you can also go to these other instance types like Graviton, which are ARM-based mm. cloud servers, and they're even less expensive, and our performance uplifts are even bigger. right? And so what we can do is we can provide the ability to move your workload to the place that makes sense for, mm. for your thing. And for us, bringing up Graviton, just in terms of bringing up an entire machine learning stack, yeah. took, us four, took us four hours. Wow. For a completely Fantastic. new architecture. And that's one of the things that nobody in the industry, in the AI infra industry has, is the ability to bring up the entire stack quickly and then do performance tuning. Most of the time, mm. the problem you have is that you have to do all this incremental work to get new kinds of models to run. And so that's one of the reasons why you get all this fragmentation. There's all yeah, these trans- right. translators and things. You have yeah. Apple decided they would get off Intel. Yep. Uh, they never were on AMD, but Windows was on both. Uh, and they started doing these M1, M2 chips. They're pretty extraordinary in terms of running yep. a laptop or a desktop in terms of performance video. And of course, you know, battery life, they're optimized for what, you know, a very consumer bent, let's say. Yeah. Um, are, well, are, and, and, and that's and that's the world I lived for years at Apple. Yeah. Right. 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 They're helping with the hardware transitions, helping the watch get to thirty-two bit ARM to sixty-four bit ARM to all all the complexity that goes into that. That Apple makes magic for developers, so that nobody has to know about it. Yeah. And are they? Do you think they're going to play a role here? Do you think their um, chips are so high performance that they're they've got a shot at taking on some machine learning and? you know, AI jobs in sincerity, or is it just because I, I was just watching somebody, you know, putting Lambda, they were, you know, trying to build some models on their M2. And they were just like, wow, this is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so, so, so what I've seen out there is that um, 
So I've been out of Apple for a long time, so I don't speak sure. for Apple. I know nothing don't about the roadmap. Apple, and know et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Disclaimer, you, disclaimer, disclaimer. You get it. Um, I don't think they're interested in the training market. Their hardware is completely mm-hmm. irrelevant there, in my opinion, yeah. and they're not even yeah. trying because they don't think it's an interesting market. It's not consumer-aligned. It's very low margin compared to, I mean, NVIDIA is accepted, I guess, but um, but that's not their strong point. What they're really focusing on is the client. Mm. And so you look at it, there's all these llama.cpp and things like this where people are running LLMs on their laptop. Apple's all over that. They're super mm. into that. And it turns out that, again, you look at the shift that we started from, there's this training part of the problem and then the inference part of the problem. What we've seen is this rise of pre-trained models. Mm. And so training a model is actually becoming actually less important over time, maybe. At least mm. the number of people that participate in that can go down. And, you know, if, if Meta keeps launching, like, amazing models that they train themselves, right? Maybe that are good enough or great enough. enough. Yeah. Then it, you were on the inference right. side and, yeah, running it on yeah. your desktop becomes super interesting. Right. And uh, inference is the part that you integrate into your product. Mm. Right. And so that becomes the interesting thing is you want to run ChatGPT on your phone. You don't want to train ChatGPT <laughs> unless you're crazy. Yeah, yeah. Right. Amazing. Well, listen, yeah. uh, great start. Uh, really excited to see where you take it. I know you're on a hiring binge right now. Uh, and you really want to bring talent on board. Uh, yeah. Best pitch to developers of why to come work on this problem. And wh- what are you looking for? And what's the culture like at Modular? Yeah, so, so what we're doing is we're taking on a really hard technology problem. Right. So this is this is a part of the problem and a layer of the stack that very few people understand. And honestly, it's things that people want to build on top of instead of having to understand. Right. But now for the specific kinds of hardware, software, cloud folks that care about super scale. Mm. Turns out there's a lot of money being spent in the space. Turns out there's a great set of opportunities in front of us. It's, it's a really exciting time in, in, in the domain. One mm. of the things that's really unusual about modular is that we don't run from demo to demo to demo to demo. We actually build high quality production stuff and we care about building things right. Mm. And what I found is that if you build things right and deliberately, strategically, and you put down the bricks one after the other, you can build some pretty epic things. And you look at mm. Mojo, for example, like we're building potentially the successor to Python. Amazing. Right. We love Python. Python's never going to go away, but this thing can take Python and give it superpowers. And as it does that, right, the opportunity to impact hundreds of millions of developers is profound. Right. And you mm. look at AI, how many developers is AI can impact? Uncountable. Right? All. All. 100%. Right? I mean, and, and the so, fact that we might have you know, a, a larger aperture of uh, people who could participate in developing, right? Like where exactly. it wasn't open to as many people. And now with these tools, it clearly yeah, exactly. And so, so, and so modular, right? What we're doing is we're focusing on this layer of the stack that we think we contribute to. So we're not building the LLM. We want to help those right. people do that. We're not building right. the cloud. We're not building the hardware. We're helping solve this problem that we think is really useful for people and it will allow other people to build on the platform. And as building this thing out, our platform is opening as an open platform. We think we're going to be able to help lots and lots and lots of people, which is super fun. And you want to build it right. So yes. I uh, was just looking at your careers page, go to modular.com slash careers. If you want to yeah. build important things and you want to build them right and enable a lot more people to participate in the AI future. Listen, you've been a great guest. Please come on again yeah. um, and well, continue so success stuff. with it. Yeah. I'm a, hu- I'm a huge fan of your Jason. So oh, thank you for having thank me. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time on This Week in Startups.